You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Praise the Lord, that's good. And then we could open our Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 8. I'm excited to be with you. Uh, we got a lot to get through today. Uh, we're moving in our year-long series in Acts. We've been, you know, four or five months already. Um, we have divided up this book of Acts into six sections or six acts, as we are uh, cleverly calling them today. We start in Act 3. I want to remind you of our series outline. Most of you had forgotten this a long time ago. That's why we remind ourselves. So the six different acts, again, that first two we've gone through, the church begins the church opposed, we saw that. Today we start the church supernatural, Lord willing, January and February of this year, going through chapters 8 through 12. Church on a mission, church encouraged, and then again all this big Lord willing, church unstoppable, leading us into the summer months, and we'll see where that all takes us, but it's a way for us to take the whole book and then to kind of divide it, but then also unite it as well. Today the church supernatural, you could say that about every obviously section of this and different sections, the church opposed that happens through all of them um, as well, but it's a way for us to again have a segment, focus on it, be excited about it, learn and grow from it um, as well. So the church supernatural today, we are in for quite a ride these next uh, few weeks and we're going to see um, supernatural conversions. We're going to see supernatural healings. People will be raised from the dead. We're going to see supernatural growth, like unbelievable life transformation. We're going to see supernatural escapes from prison. And today we're going to see God's supernatural plan unfolding his mission to reach the nations with the gospel. We're going to see the beginning of that unfold as we go from Jerusalem to, to Judea and Samaria. Really what's happening today is the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus when he said, um, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail um, against it. And no one and nothing is ever going to stop the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that happening again before us. We see that happening in our day today. Why? Because Jesus Christ, he is the supernatural way maker. Okay? He makes a path. He paves that path. And he will follow through with that. He makes a way. When we say there is no way, Jesus Christ says, I am the way. And so he's going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Again, I want you to be encouraged uh, right from the start. If you are alive in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you belong to the way maker. You belong to the one who will never, ever be stopped. If you are alive in the Lord Jesus Christ right now, then last time I checked, the Bible says if God is for us, then who can be against us, okay? That guarantees it doesn't matter what happens in life, doesn't matter who comes against you, doesn't matter what people say, doesn't matter if you die. If you are alive in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are guaranteed 100% victory in him. You will never die. You cannot lose because these are the promises that cause us to have the hope that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Summon right now, this is for you. For you, you've never known this hope. And today is your day. Today is the day when you get saved by the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, not by works, not by what you do, by what he's done. Jesus Christ is the way maker and he offers his gift of grace through all those who place their faith in him for forgiveness of sins and they become unstoppable in the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Truly, it is a church supernatural, okay? The world might condemn, Jesus Christ exalts. Today is no exception. Today we see salvation overcoming sorcery. 
Today we see deliverance overcoming deception. Today we see joy overcoming opposition. We're going to tackle our passage in two main sections today. We're going to read the first and then we're going to get to the first point. Again, a lot to get through. Bibles open. God, help us. Holy Spirit, teach us. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. You guys ready? Here we go. Verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Who's that? That's the execution of Stephen. Martyred, the first martyr in the Christian church for his faith. And it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. A devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Notice, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He, listen to this, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Wow. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, Jesus. And the crowds with one accord, live in the text, imagine this, with one accord, totally united, paid attention, every preacher's dream, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Notice this, here are the miracles. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, wow, wow. I think of some of the demons battling away at souls even here right now today. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Notice the result, verse 8, love verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Okay, so we're going to summarize this section with our first point, two main sections, two main points, a whole bunch of P's today, okay? So many P's, okay? Point number one is this, persecution, pain, provision, and proclamation, Okay? For those of you who are note-takers, I should pause like a good minute or two to let you write those down, okay? Persecution, pain, provision, and proclamation. So in verse 1, it says great persecution rose against the church. Now, let's make sure we understand this, okay? Whenever the Holy Spirit is at work, you better bet Satan's not far behind, okay? I think sometimes the most basic understandings of Scripture we can often miss. Okay, listen, if the Lord's powerfully at work in your life, you better anticipate Satan's not happy about that, okay? If you see God doing great things in the church or the family and the gospel of changing lives, you can guarantee the enemy is lurking just a little bit behind. Whenever the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work, Satan's going to counter in some form, in some way. It's always been that way. It continues to be that way until Jesus Christ returns and deals with Satan once and for all. Again, sometimes we get caught off guard. God's doing this great work, and all of a sudden I go through this massive trial. Like, what's happening? What's happening right now? It's called reality. It's called the battle for the kingdom. It's called the battle for my heart. Let's just be sure, man. Like whenever God's at work, Satan is trying to come along and counter that work. We see that all through scripture. We see that today. It's interesting. Today in our text, the device of Satan is a man named Saul. And we learn a little about him here. Saul was vicious. Saul was, as a, as a kind of premier Jewish a uh, scholar even, Saul was violent. Saul was incredibly vindictive. Uh, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. In some form, Saul is the leader of the great persecution on the church right now. He's leading the charge. He's 
filled with such hatred. Look at verse 3. It says, but Saul was ravaging the church. And that word ravaging in the Greek, like there's a lot here. Ravaging, um, this means um, sadistic cruelty. It was also used to describe a wild animal tearing the flesh apart of another animal. Like this is what's behind Saul as he's attacking the church. In fact, in Galatians 1, Saul turned Paul. Paul says about his former life, look on the screen, he says, For you heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Like he wasn't messing around. Notice also in verse 3, it says he dragged off, like this, this, he dragged off men and women. Okay, so you can, you can, you can see his hatred uh, literally doing this. And by the way, let's pause just for a second. Again, Satan's so opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at to the extent that he goes, you can see the hatred of Saul, but it's the hatred of Satan. I think sometimes, too, we trick ourselves into thinking, well, you know, Satan, yeah, he's evil, but, you know, he's not, like, not, not that bad. Like, you know, maybe 60% of people he hates, but 40% he kind of, he's good. But no, 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 there's nothing, there's not one ounce of Satan that is good. Not one. There's not one, not not 1% of him is good. Not 1% of him has anything but absolute uh, hatred and evil and absolute demonic oppression on every level. He's the father of lies. He's the great accuser. There's there's, there's not, he just wants you dead. You have to know that. He's, He's a formidable enemy and there's not one person he doesn't want sent to hell forever. That's how awful he is. He will stop at nothing to see as many people as possible, and he hates Jesus, and he hates the church, and he hates anyone associated with it. Sometimes we get lulled to sleep, man. We think, oh, it's not so bad, it's not so bad. We did. That's exactly what he wants. Focus on him too much, ignore him completely. Because what do you have here? Saul, you have Saul. He is literally, here's a man, giving his life to the death of Christ and the church. Think about that. Hey, what are you doing with your life? I'm giving my whole life to the death of the church and the death of Jesus Christ. That's his ambition. That's his entire plan. And yet, and yet we know this, for those of us who know our Bibles, we are one chapter away from the number one enemy of the church becoming the number one missionary the church has ever seen. I mean, it's just, that's the gospel church. That's the awesome power of the gospel. Let's pray for more of that. Let's pray for more of the number one enemies of Christ. God would transform the gospel, completely turn them upside down, and they become the strongest advocates of the gospel ever. That is the power of the gospel. Prayer meeting this Wednesday at 7 p.m., just in case you weren't aware, man. We're praying for some of those things. And what do we know here? We know this, okay? Whenever there's significant persecution, let's just be realistic. Whenever there's significant persecution, there's going to be significant pain. In verse 2, notice, they made great lamentation over Stephen. They buried him. And again, when you live in the text here, I can only imagine the grief of the early church. It's important not to gloss it over, right? Stephen just was stoned to death. He was stoned to death by the opponents of Christ and the church. So you have this young man, godly and gifted and loved and horrifically murdered. And that comes with a tremendous amount of pain and grief. Think of the pain inflicted upon the early members. They saw this. They heard this. They experienced this. And then you have others who are dragged off. Men and dragged off. Imagine Imagine men and women you love 
and they're brought, and authorities are dragging them off and throwing. Imagine the separation. Imagine and live in this. Imagine the tears. Imagine the fear. Imagine the anguish. Imagine the grief. Imagine how desperate you would feel. Imagine just like what is going to happen. Just again the pain that comes in this moment as the persecution uh, rises up against the church. It's very important for us to gain perspective here. The church we're going to read about and have been reading about and learning about, they experience a supernatural work like never before. Like supernatural activity by God's spirit all over the place. But listen, very, very important principle. Loved ones, we love the supernatural in our lives, but listen, listen, this is important. The supernatural does not mean there won't be pain. I'm going to say that again because it's that important. God's supernatural activity does not mean that there won't be pain. In fact, you could say the genuine working of the Spirit of God always results in one kind of pain or another. This is what Jesus promised on this life. I read it again this week in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 10, just packed with Jesus promising it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough. This is why Jesus says in John 16 on the screen for you, he says this, in this world you will have much tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Okay, you know, that, that, I need to see both of those truths. I need to see both. I need to see, number one, Jesus promises in this world, you're going to have trial, you're going to have tribulation. I need to know the second part, but take heart, I've got to figure it out. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Take heart, the light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. Take heart, I got you. Who's that for right now? Jesus says to you right now, yeah, there's tribulation, I promise that, but take heart, I've got you, I've got you, I've overcome the world. The day will come when I return, and all will be made right. All sin will be dealt with. All evil will be judged and vanquished. Take heart, I have overcome the world. So listen, ready? We want the will of God. The will of God includes pain. The will of God includes pain. But what the will of God also includes and promise, as much as their persecution and pain, listen, listen, there will always be provision. There will always be the provision of Christ. I want you to see the word scattered in verse 1 and verse 4. Okay, check it out there. In verse 1 and 4, notice the word scattered. Maybe circle it, draw a line between the two of them. That's what I like to do. The use of this word in the original scattered there's two potential ways that scattered could be used. It's like scattering of ashes, finality, or the scattering of seed in farming. The use here is the scattering of seed in terms of farming. The early church in persecution and pain was scattered by the plan and the promises of God. So notice this. This is, this is good and insightful. The very persecution that was Satan's plan to destroy the church, God used under his plan as a provision for the church to see his church be distributed and the gospel message proclaimed to people who have never heard it before. So this happens all the time in our lives, happening right now, it happens all throughout scripture. Satan has planned, again, one part of the plan for evil. God can take that very plan and then change it and use it for tremendous good. Uh, an Old Testament example is the story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Tremendous evil. He went from there and he ended up in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife uh, falsely accused him. He ended up in prison in Egypt. 
And God would use those circumstances for eventually Joseph to be raised up as second in command of all of Egypt that he might be used to provide the provision for God's people that they would survive one of the greatest famines the world has ever seen. At the end of Joseph's life, he turns to his brother and he says, what you meant for harm, God meant for good, okay? God can at any time take the very devices of evil and Satan and turn it around to use it for good and for the furthering and the provision of his church for the gospel to go forward. Because if you notice here, the church is scattered in verse 2. Notice where they are scattered to. Can you see that in verse 2? Notice where they're scattered. Don't let me do all the work for you, okay? Take a look. You can just turn your head down to your Bible. It's not that hard, okay? You look at throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, what does that remind you of? Well, if you're familiar again with God's word, that might make you think of Acts chapter 1, verse 8 on the screen for you. In Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus says this promise, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's happened in the book of Acts. It will happen again, but that's happened. Notice, and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So isn't it interesting? The persecution rises up and this is the very part of God's plan that will further the gospel to the promises or the places he promised would be seen, specifically Judea and Samaria. Again, amazing to me. So, You have disciples here being scattered through persecution as seeds for the gospel. Stop here for a second. What I want us all, if we are saved in Christ right now and we are alive, we have to understand every single one of us is a seed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. Here's what happens sometimes what we do. We complain of our position. We whine about our predicament. We get frustrated, let's say, in our employment. Could it be, though, that the very reason we haven't seen change yet is because the Lord is saying to Ephesus to say, don't you see, more than I want you to be promoted, more than I want you to receive a greater paycheck, more than I want you to have a lesser commute, at this point, at this time, in this way, I want you to be seed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. At your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood, where you are, don't you believe that in the realm of eternity, the workplace and job role isn't as important as people saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ? All of us, where we are at this point right now, exactly where we are, are seeds and light for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us who's alive in him. We don't think that way enough. Every neighbor, every workplace, every family, every opportunity, We are where we are under the sovereignty of God to be seed scattered for the purposes of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. How that might change our thinking is supposed to get me out of here to saying, wait a second, you have something for me to do here, God? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And secondly, how many of us are willing to be scattered for the gospel? Some of us, God calls us to maybe a new place, a new mission, a new place. A new role again for the gospel somewhere else. So are we willing to go when God says go? Are we willing to respond? Are we seeing ourselves on mission for God? All of us are where we are. And yet some are we willing to go outside of comfort zones to be scattered seed for the gospel in a foreign nation, in a foreign part of, again, where we live in a different environment? Are we willing? Or in the opposite, are we hunkered down so tight in our comfort and coziness that we don't want to move at all. Again, you know this, this past ministry year we opened up a, a fourth service as you are well 
aware of. And like, you got to know, man, for my heart and the elders are like, I, I'm not opening up. Church size, I'm not turned on by church size, man. Um, I am motivated by people saved in Jesus Christ and being uh, safe from hell to know him forever and live with him with hope eternal. That, that, that's what motivates me. And so, but if we're going to do four services, I don't want to have another service just to spread out the population of the church, you know, a little more throughout four. I, I just don't have any interest in that. We do want to see people saved. And so we have a thousand more seats that potentially a thousand more souls could be saved and maybe a thousand people sent as well. A thousand seats, a thousand souls, a thousand sent. I like it. I like it. I'm telling you, all of us working together with the gospel, scattering seeds, seeing people saved, to be in this place at this time for the gospel. And like my prayer growing more and more, 2020, Lord, would you save hundreds and hundreds of people, a thousand seats, a thousand souls, a thousand sent. God, would you do that? I'm telling you, every single one of us working together. You know, you did some simple math, you know, 4,000 or so people in our church. If one quarter of us led one person to Christ this year, we're out of room again. That seems doable in some ways. I mean, God is the one who decides. I'm just telling you, faith and vision, and God, would you use us, all of us where we are, the potential to reach so many. While we have the time in this place, again, in this moment. And so we can look right now, and in our text here, it's powerful stuff. We can see the, the pain of the culture of our day. We can see the pain of the attack of Christ or on Christ. But please be sure, listen, the principle of God's provision is always in play. Listen, listen, whether or not what you see around you, the Lord is always at work more than we realize. There's a song that we haven't sung officially as a church. We've sung different parts, but it's called Waymaker. And the bridge I love when it says, that even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Why? Because you never stop. Jesus Christ will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But th- these statements here are mature statements of the Christian life. Because so many of us, we're like, well, I don't see it. It's not happening. If I, don't, I, I don't feel it. I'm not feeling it. So, I mean, I, I, I'm a feeler, man. Like, I, I get emotions. And emotions want to lead you. They're terrible leaders. Emotions are good followers. When I don't feel it doesn't mean God's not working. When I don't see, God's always working. He's all, you cannot stop him. You never stop. You never stop working. The power of Jesus Christ as he builds his church. That's a statement of maturity. God help us to sing it and say it and believe it and live it more and more and more. I mean, honestly, you put yourself in Acts 8. Do you think the church had any idea as to the growth that was about to be seen? Do you think they could have imagined Saul becoming Paul and his radical transformation in Christ? I mean, the ways of God are not the ways of man. And think of it too. Okay, Saul's plan was to murder Stephen. Saul's plan was to throw, and, and, and that, that plan was executed, and yet his plan failed miserably. His plan to ruin the church was actually used by God to cause the church to grow in ways he never could have thought. I love how God does that. The exact plan of evil turns out to be the furthering of the gospel under the plan of God. So there's persecution and pain, which leads to provision, which also leads to proclamation to proclamation. Kent Hughes said this. He said this. He says, following the church through Acts is like following a wounded deer through the forest. Drops of blood mark the trail. Yeah, that's really good. And that's really true. 
the pain and the persecution, but leads to the provision and to the proclamation again of the gospel as well. With the trail of blood comes the trail of truth and miraculous transformation. Because if you look at verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And then notice again, the people listen, and then these miracles happen, unclean spirits crying out. And then look at the result, verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. When I read that verse each time this week in study, and even now, that joy gives me joy. There was much joy. Here's a, here's a wonderful principle, ready? Stephen's death resulted in a city's joy. That, like, that's what God does. Um, the death of one, in the Christian life, in Christian principles, the death of one gives life to another. This is why Jesus died. Our Savior led the way. The death, Paul said later on when he was, of course, saved, he says, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. See, we die that you might live. We sacrifice that you might be blessed. We live at a cost. We suffer that you might have the light and the love and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We become less that the gospel then is proclaimed. Jesus Christ, only he can make ways supernaturally. He's the supernatural way maker. He makes a path when there's none to be found and none to be seen. The power of the gospel. Loved ones, have faith today. Take encouragement. He is working whether we see it or feel it or not. Incredible things to see what's happening here in Acts 8. Now we move on to point number two. And yes, a whole bunch of more Ps, all right? Purpose, purity, power, and presumption. Purpose, purity, power, and presumption. This is our second section of Scripture. We're going to go through it one paragraph at a time. I've got so much to get through. Lord, help us right here. Keep our attention so strong. So, first section, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in that city and amazed the people. So watch this. And amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Then they all paid attention to him. Notice, from the least to the greatest. Wow. Saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. That's not insignificant. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God... In the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men um, and women. So, significant here. We're introduced to a man named Simon. He was a magician. He was um, into sorcery. He was covered in darkness. The Bible tells us that Simon had really, in some ways, all of Samaria under his spell. Like, literally. From the least to the greatest, they were calling him if not a god, they were calling him um, someone who has come from a god or someone who's come from a divine being. So we can say with certainty and accuracy, again, Simon had the multitude of Samaria under his spell, which was deception and darkness. Now, let's stop here for a second. Be very, very careful. This is what our world does. Whether it's in the form of sorcery with a guy named Simon right here, or whether it's in our world across so many messages so much media, so much darkness, so much deception, so much distraction, all with the desire to destroy every person that comes under it. Uh, I was listening to uh, Moeller's podcast this week, and he just happened to mention uh, a part on astrology. And he mentioned the Pew Research Center, very credible, 2018, indicated that in our day, 37% of women 
and 20% of men believe in astrology. Wow. They won't believe in Jesus Christ, but they'll believe in astrology. And that's now a $2.1 billion industry. People are so desperate. But you see, Satan doesn't care what you believe in as long as it's not Jesus. Because astrology is going to be just mass forms of darkness and deception leading no one anywhere good. Leading to nowhere. This is what our world, one aspect of so many different ways people are deceived and blinded by the spirit of the age. 2 Corinthians 4 says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory that is found in the face of Jesus Christ. But notice the transition here. So you have Samaria under darkness. Notice verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So this is awesome. Here we see the purpose and the power and the purity of the gospel. Okay, it's hard to, it's hard to overstate here the impact. Notice here, a whole city under the spell of darkness and deception, and then the gospel comes in. And by the way, like Philip, I mean, he wasn't seminary trained. This wasn't Philip the apostle. This is Philip like servant deacon type. Like he's the Greek-speaking Jew, a servant, but just like a man of God. And he stumbles down to Samaria. Has he ever been there before? We don't know. And he comes in. He has no training. He just starts preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, the power of the gospel is unleashed. And the light starts destroying the, gar- the, uh, the darkness. Notice here, it's the gospel that breaks the spell of the spirit of the age. And that's what the gospel does. For 2,000 years, the gospel's been smashing open prison doors. For 2,000 years, the gospel's been breaking chains off people who've been in prison. For 2,000 years, the gospel's been setting captives free. For 2,000 years, the gospel's been causing people blind to receive sight. For 2,000 years, the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been causing lost people to be found. I was blind, but now I see. Again, for 2,000 years, and including today right now, the gospel of Jesus Christ enters into the new age and enters into the blindness and enters into the magic and enters into the sorcery and enters into the deception and it comes in and it fills a person and saves a person and transforms a person and they're never the same again. By the way, next week in baptism service, all four services can't wait. Go Lord. More people standing up saying, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. All because Jesus Christ lives in me. This is what he does. This is the, Philip comes down, man, and before Philip knows it, he's witnessing revival in front of his eyes. All these people being transformed by the gospel. You gotta imagine, he's just like, this is awesome. And who's being transformed? Listen, the Samaritans are being transformed. Why is that significant? Well, Jews and Samaritans really hated each other. Samaritans were considered half-breeds. And they had married with the Assyrians, and so they lost the pure blood of the Jewish race, and they were seen as anyone. They would never hang out together. They, they really hated each other. And so you have Jews ministering to the Samaritans, and the Samaritans are being saved with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Philip comes and he says, I'm not preaching to you a physical place in a temple in Jerusalem. I'm preaching to you Jesus Christ who gives forgiveness and grace that you yourself become a temple of the Holy Spirit and Christ comes and lives within you. 
And the Samaritans are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, the revival that Philip is watching and the power of Christ and his name. And we should pray for things like that, eh? Hey, we should have a prayer meeting this week at Wednesday at 7 p.m. and pray for these things. Oh, we are. That's such good coincidence. I'm so glad that we're doing that. But again, let's take so much faith from this text. Look at what's happening. You can't stop Jesus, man. He's the way maker. He is the way. He makes a way where there is no way because he is the way. And he is the truth. And he is the life. And from here then you see his purpose and purity results in, in, in power. Now look at verse 14 again. Okay, so there's so much to get through in this text today. And um, each section in some ways could be its own message, but, but I just pray the Lord really uses it. So look at verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, these verses have caused no little debate, again, for many, many years and centuries. Why? There seems to be a separation here between conversion and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which again, we understand biblically uh, go together, right? So then why is this happening in this case? See, we strongly believe here at, at Hope, we believe what's happening here. This is a unique transitional time within the early church. Okay, think about it, okay? The gospel for the first time in this way is going beyond Judaism, to, going beyond Jews and reaching an entirely different people group in the Samaritans, okay? So Peter and John... For them to go hear the report and to confirm the power of the Holy Spirit, that's totally brilliant under the design of God. Say, well, why? Why is that brilliant? Uh, Four main reasons, okay? Think about it, okay? Peter and John, as part of the apostles, they held the true authority. If they were just told, hey, this is what's happening over there, and in these early stages... And they had no part of the authority of that. You could see how that might become very problematic. Is it real? Is it, is, it, is it even right? But they go in person and they're able to unquestionably witness and empower this gospel transition to a whole different group of people. Secondly, Peter and John being there and to see the Spirit of God fall upon them, it would um, undeniably confirm the unity of the one true church. Okay? So imagine Peter and John don't go. You have a work in the Samaritan group of people and the work in the Jerusalem group of Christians. How easily, this is the way the humans work too, right? How easily would there be a Samaritan church and there would be a Jerusalem church and they would not get along and they would be against each other. I'm so glad we have nothing like that in our day with denominations and whatnot, eh? So yeah, oh, there's only like thousands of them, right? This is the problem of what what happened. But here you see there wouldn't just be a Samaritan church, a Jerusalem church. Peter and John come, one church. Thirdly, When Peter and John come and the Holy Spirit is so evidently working within the people, this is God's community of one people now. There's there's no ethnic divisions. There's going to be no ethnicity that's not included or excluded. This is one community, uh, one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one church. 
And in a couple of chapters from now, we're going to see even Gentiles. Gentiles will even be reached with the gospel. And all nations come to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is prophesied all through Scripture. And lastly, Jesus said to Peter, you will hold the keys of the kingdom. And here is Peter in person, again, giving the spiritual authority to commission and to pray for, to lay hands upon, again, the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit. And Peter, in a couple of chapters, he will witness the Holy Spirit falling upon the Gentiles for the first time, again, fulfilling his role as the one, again, who holds the keys to the kingdom. Just awesome and amazing and beautiful. So you have to imagine the awe and the encouragement held by Peter and John and everyone as they witnessed this massive, unique transition of the gospel reaching so many people, reaching the nations. It's, it's so beautiful, you know? And again, again, listen, we're a fulfillment of this work here. How many nations are represented in this room right now? Dozens. How many languages are spoken across this church? I don't know, 45, 50 now? Maybe more? It's just awesome. We are the fulfillment. By the way, in December, we... Um, made up those gospel tract hope cards, pretty simple, hope cards to give out to people, to reach people that we're seeking to love with the gospel. We're out of them all. They're all gone. And so we pray thousands are gone. So we just pray that those are all being used and praying wherever they, wherever they end up, that God would use that. And, and we're going to do version 2.0, get some feedback, try to make it a little bit better, improve, or a little different. And want to keep, keep doing this. A thousand seeds, a thousand souls, a thousand cent. That God may save and transform and use us in the process to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How many are so hurting? So we've seen here so much. We've seen purpose and purity and power. But we end, we end with this. We end with um, presumption. Presumption. So in the midst of all this beauty gospel stuff, we have an imposter. And his name is Simon. He's a sorcerer. Look at verse 13. It says, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now look down at verse 18. So you're like, oh, well, that's, that's cool. The sorcerer seems to be saved. Well, not so fast. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's not good, okay? But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Okay, that is also not good. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. That's a problem. For your heart is not right before God. That is also a problem. Repent, therefore, for this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, not good, and in the bond of iniquity, also not good. And Simon answered, Pray for me that the Lord to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That is also not good. We'll explain in just a second. So, our conclusion from this part of Scripture is that there's no way Simon can be truly saved. You say, well, why? How? Well, he professed and even, he was even baptized. Okay, now that's very telling and honestly very encouraging, okay? Here's the reality, okay? You do your best as a church to only baptize those who are genuine believers. But the reality is we can't fully see the heart and time is the greatest factor. You do your best, you interview, you try to see. But even the early church missed it. 
Even because Jesus promised many will receive the gospel with great joy, but when trial and persecution comes, they will fall away right away. Jesus promises in the church there'll be wheat and tares. There'll be wheat and there'll be weeds. There'll be true believers and false believers sitting in the same room like right now. There are true and there are false in this room. Who are they? I don't know, but God does. That's a reality. So it shouldn't surprise us in some way. Here you have Simon saying, oh yeah, this is good, this is good. But notice here, notice he was a professor but not a possessor. And there's a lot of people like that. You profess something, but do you actually possess Christ? Well, how do we know again? He offers money for the Holy Spirit power. That, that indicates to me he has no clue what he's talking about. His ambition is totally self. He's like, I want this. I want to gain this so I can get recognition and I can get power. Then in verse 20, Peter says, well, he says, he says um, notice, may your silver perish with you. J.B. Phillips translates that phrase as to hell with you and your money. And that's accurate. But Peter would never condemn a believer with that type of statement. Peter says, your heart is not right. That's a massive indictment. You have no lot in this. That's also a massive indictment. Repent of your wickedness. He has no fruit that we're looking for in the Christian life. He says, I see you in the gall of bitterness, meaning you are wretched. You have wretchedness. You are in the bond of iniquity. You are a prisoner of sin. Okay, None of those statements can be said about a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. And then finally, when Simon hears this, he's like, Peter, you pray for me that this may not happen. But Peter just said to him, no, you pray. So, you know, Simon says, no, you, you do the work for me. If you really get the gospel, you're not looking for someone else to solve your problems. You just run to Jesus Christ and say, forgive me, I'm a sinner. You have one mediator, Jesus Christ. It's not like, hey, Eric, you go to Christ for me and you do my business. No, no, you can't do that for me. Only Christ can do that for me. Simon didn't get it. He didn't get it. He said, why is this all here right now? I think it's a great warning for us. I think Simon serves as a powerful, sobering warning to anyone who might profess to know Christ, but at the same time, there's nothing that's been real in possessing the Holy Spirit and the actual fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want us all to consider that today and right now. You know, it's here. And it's here for a reason, and you know, just if I can sneak one more P in before we're done. Look at, look at verse 25. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So my last P would be progress. There's progress as Jesus Christ paves the path and the way for the gospel to go forward. Loved ones, Jesus Christ is the way maker through persecution, through pain, even through false profession, Jesus Christ is the way maker and you look to him and you love him and you will never ever be disappointed. I pray today this text is a massive source of encouragement for you and I pray today as we respond, there will also be a wonderful way to say yes, Jesus, no one's stopping you ever. In Jesus' name, amen? amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Lord, we do say amen to you. We say amen to your way. I love the truth here. Even through persecution and pain, there's provision, and there's proclamation. So Lord, I pray right now, I pray your people, your church is encouraged. I beg you that faith is rising. I pray that transformation is occurring. I pray that hope is filling. And I pray you will help us and use us even now as we respond 
Even it says right there, it says there was joy in the city. Yes, Lord, may there be joy in this place right now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.